Obviously, it's been a very crazy year, and we started the show in May. The first episodes aired in the beginning of June. And I feel like, how did we get to, you know, 24, 25 episodes, uh, 25 hours? Like, how did this happen? And it actually makes me feel good because it kind of casts the year in a more positive light for me. Peter, I don't know what you mean about 2020. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I feel like everyone has a really good sense that it's been a great year. Nothing's been weird about it. And like it's just sort of been business as usual. It's totally business as usual. I'm sitting in a closet uh, in an attic. <laughs> So that was the voice of, uh, of of our fellow producer, Peter Salomone. I'm Mike Birbiglia here with our final episode of Working It Out for uh, 2020 uh, with my fellow producer, Joseph Birbiglia. Hey, Joe. Hey. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> we, of course, are not in the same room, uh, but it's a unique situation where today we have the entire staff of Working It Out uh, talking about the experience of working on the podcast this year and then just sharing our favorite clips. What a year it's been. It's, it's been quite a year. Uh, the, uh, the, the, so this, just so to bring people up to speed, this whole thing started in March. The virus? When, uh, oh, is there a, has there been a virus? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is all new to me. Um, no, it started, uh, the Working It Out podcast came out of this idea of uh, comedy clubs were closed and, sh- you know, gatherings and shows are closed. And I was actually on the phone with Roy Wood Jr. and John Mulaney and some other comedians. And we said, like, how could we help support comedy clubs? Yeah. So I started doing these Instagram live things we- that we call Tip Your Weight Stuff. And uh, and and then and then what happened was is it was me and a comedian working out material, uh, and then people contributed on tipyourweightstaff.com. We built a website. We raised a, a bunch of money for comedy club waitstaffs. And at a certain point, people kept saying like, uh, "I miss this. Where can I find it?" <laughs> yes, the Instagram platform is maybe not ideal for publishing stuff like that long term. Right. And so what we were so we were like, okay, well, what now? What do we do? Maybe we'll, maybe we'll just make a podcast and we could professionally record this yeah. and and mix it. And so then we we enlisted the help of uh, producer Peter Salomone, our sound engineer Kate Belinsky, another producer uh, Seth Barish, who's directed uh, my shows, uh, assistant editor Mabel Lewis. And so what we thought um, was that today we would invite on the whole uh, production staff of the show to to share what everyone's favorite moments were from the podcast. Mm. We've had so many exciting people on the show. We've had uh, Hannah Gadsby. We've had Roy Wood Jr., Ira Glass. Uh, One of my favorites was one of the first ones we recorded uh, with John Mulaney. The other day I was like, it's probably hard to have an affair during the quarantine. Like, it's not a great time for affairs. Yeah, either they're done or they're thriving in secretive ways. That's right. And then I had, like, my tag for it was, like, you know, like Cuomo in his daily briefing is just going to be, like, you know, we're trying to get affairs back uh, up and running. We should have affairs by July. 
uh, everyone My needs to be daughter patient. said, why can't people sneak around? Why can't people see their gumar? <laughs> why? Who's going to get the PPE and the ventilators? And <laughs> I can't do how he says ventilators, but I will try for the whole quarantine. Ventilators. Ven- <laughs> it has multiple it has like multiple moves. I picture like someone skateboarding in an empty pool when he says it. It just has a lot of <laughs> has a lot of vocal shift. A lot of people are asking me. There's you know, no PPE. People can't see their gumars. <laughs> <laughs> people are asking me when's when when can I have an affair? And we don't know right now. And the no. answer is we don't know. And if you want to blame someone, blame me. I love that. Um, the uh, That was a very eventful thing and a real progression, actually. It's a real working it out moment because in June, Mulaney and I worked out that Cuomo bit. And then uh, in the fall, he was the host of Saturday Night Live and did a more formed uh, version of that in his monologue. So that was uh, that was a big that was a big moment for working it out. Um, I'm going to introduce into the conversation our sound engineer Kate Belinsky. Kate, we've worked with on the old ones. Uh, she's worked on Serial. Uh, she's done so much brilliant work. Kate, did you have a, a favorite moment or a favorite episode this year? Yeah, it's um, it's actually one of the more recent ones. I loved your conversation with Natasha Leone. I think the first time I saw you in something was in Woody Allen's movie, Everyone Says I Love You. I think that's when I first saw you. You know, uh, I was so young. I was like 15, 16, yeah. and playing his daughter and uh, and Goldie Hawn's daughter. And, like, everybody and their mother was in that movie. Like, yeah, um, yeah. And, like, I actually, love, I actually love that movie. I love that movie. Yeah. I'll never forget, though, my mom leaning over to me at the end of the movie, at the end of the premiere, she leaned over and she said, not his best, huh? Oh my god! And oh my god! That's honestly the only review I remember. The movie. Every time the movie comes up, I'm instantly ashamed because I can just remember oh. my mother saying, "Not his best." So I'm like, I guess it was, I I ruined the movie. Like that was I think. <laughs> that was one of the my favorite episodes of all time. It was actually, I mean, that clip we played is so absurd, but actually, it was a really. A profound episode. I thought she had a lot of really deep things to say. I, it's one of the darkest episodes. It's definitely serious, and you talk a lot about death, but it's also totally silly and absurd. Yes, yes, entirely. Um, in the absurd category, I know that Kate and I both love the David Sedaris episode. I just got back from North Carolina, and so I was trying, usually when I go to the beach house, I try to write an essay about the beach house, like what went on at the beach. What's the story of the beach house now? Sure. Because there's always a story there, but it was just Hugh and I, and then my sister Gretchen came down. But anyway, when I was there, it was just the story seemed to be nature, and I kept finding all of these turtles. So I kind of found a baby snapping turtle kind of (laughs) marching furiously toward the grocery store, like it was going to fire everybody who worked there. And it was just... (laughs) And you know how they always look so angry, too? And so... I brought it to the creek to let it go. And there was a guy, a a young woman with one leg and a guy there um, standing there. And 
And he turned the turtle upside down and he said, see, it's a female. You can tell by the shape of the shell right there. And so I, I reluctantly let it go, but I was thinking about all the kids who I know. You don't want to give it to like a five-year-old, but like a 12-year-old <laughs> would sure. be a good custodian for a snapping turtle because they, you know, they can bite <laughs> your finger off. But I thought, <laughs> what if I kept the snap, snapping turtle, I kept thinking, what would I name it? What would I name it? Mary Catherine. Don't you think that <laughs> sure, that's a good snapping turtle name. Such a good name for a snap. It would just change your attitude towards it completely if you named it Mary Catherine. I mean, yeah. It From there, it goes into a much deeper conversation about finding stories in the real world and not always being on your smartphone, which I also think is a beautiful part of the conversation. But there's something that makes me really happy to know that David Sedaris runs around giving little kids turtles. Yeah, I love that episode. And I, I learned so much from him. He actually uh, gave me some ideas for some lines about the YMCA pool. And uh, yeah, so that was one of the best for sure. Peter, uh, Peter Salomon, uh, to the listeners, is one of our producers. Uh, he's worked uh, with our production company for many years. Um, and uh, Peter, did you have a favorite episode that you wanted to mention? On the Jimmy Kimmel episode, you discuss in depth with Jimmy a story that you talked about on his show and everything, but you really get in depth about the time that you dropped a tray of meatballs on his front steps after a <laughs> dinner party. <laughs> yes. So when I make dinner, and you've been to my house for dinner. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I. What happens at the end, I always make too much food. It's, you know, it's just a thing, always. <laughs> and by yes. the way, you know, I really like, you know, when I I saw your last name and, uh, you know, okay, we're both Italian. I feel like Sebastian Maniscalco compared to you, Italian-wise. <laughs> yes, you're heavy Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But anyway, um, so um, at the end of the meal, which I will almost always do, I will say... Do you want to take any of this home? Because sure. I know I, I almost never eat leftovers because I've been cooking it all day. I'm sick of it by the time it, sure. it's, uh, you know. And you said, yes, I would like to take this home. And I will just say that I appreciate that. We don't go through the whole like, uh, you know, even if you're going to throw it out or in the, in the case yeah. uh, of when you were here at my house, accidentally drop it on the ground <laughs> as, you, <laughs> as you leave, which I still have the video of you cleaning it all <laughs> I from just, my for the listeners, I, I, I had dinner. Jimmy made us dinner, which was really nice. And then I took meatballs in a box to go and I dropped them essentially <laughs> on their front gate. And then like I'd like grabbed them and like stuffed them in the box. And it's then a very funny video. I happen to have a security <laughs> camera out front of the house. And uh, and instantly that's what I, I went oh, to. Gosh. <laughs> And then it led to this moment that I never thought would happen, which is that Jimmy Kimmel sent us the security camera footage. Of me um, spilling <laughs> meatballs on his front steps. Wait, yeah. I didn't and get to putting, see this. And then, yeah, no, this is all social media, Oh, I'll have Kate. to send you a link. You, this is not audio stuff, Kate. This is not, <laughs> like, stay in your lane. And speaking of audio, there was no audio on the security cam footage, so we decided to put That's Amore underneath it. <laughs> yes. That's a solid choice. So that was real. I, I had heard about this. And I never thought that we'd actually see the footage. And then we did. And it happened because of the podcast. So that was one of my favorite moments. And you know what's funny? I love about that po that episode is that Jimmy, 
uh, came on. He and I were texting, and he said, I listened to all the episodes, you know, and I was like, do you want to come on? He was like, sure. And I mean, because he was he was driving across the country in a Winnebago with his family, and he needed to stay <laughs> stay awake. And uh, and so we saved he as he pointed out, we saved his life. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a good story. Which infuriated Breitbart. Breitbart really wanted him dead. Um, <laughs> well, the least he, he could do is come on the podcast. After that, we saved his life. Meanwhile, Breitbart wanted him dead because he <laughs> wants uh, children to have health care. <laughs> what we're saying is we're frontline workers. <laughs> or as as John Mulaney puts it, comedians are last responders. <laughs> By the way, uh, for the listeners, that's uh, the voice of Mabel Lewis. Mabel is an assistant editor on the show. She's the youngest member of the staff. She's in college at University of Chicago. And uh, and and Mabel, did you have a favorite moment from the podcast this year? Um, I was going to say that that the Pete Holmes episode. I think is one where if you just want to listen to jokes back to back to back for like an hour, that is such a good one to listen to. I didn't think I was gaining weight during COVID until I was uh, watch. Whenever I watch a video I shoot of my wife and my daughter, I can always hear my breathing like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh I'm like, where did I shoot this? Lurking in the bushes? Oh my god, that's good. It's I re- love it. It's ready to go, and and it will be funnier with uh, a microphone. But it's a hundred percent true. It's a hundred percent vulnerable. And here's too. here's one. Is like, uh, <laughs> if they're on flat ground, how am I running up a hill? <laughs> I will write that down. Video breathing is the name on the bit. I love that bit. If I think it's so funny. On flat ground. How am I? <laughs> what is this? I a David Blaine trick? Uphill. Hilarious. That's one of my favorite things about <laughs> the uh that's one of my favorite things about the podcast is that it's a genuine exchange of ideas and tags and and like places that the jokes could go. And like I think the reason I love the Pete Holmes episode is that he and I are both from an improv background. And so it's like I'll take your idea and I'll add this to it. And I'll take that idea and then I'll add this to it. Next thing you know, you've created a a, a thing that didn't exist before. And, and that's why I love Pete because he has this yes and spirit that's just like unstoppable. And he seemingly has an endless uh, well of energy. Yeah. Mm. And Seth I, Seth, I know that you really like that episode too, partly in relation to the next show, because uh, this Seth Barish, we haven't introduced, is uh, is a consulting producer on Working It Out. Uh, he and I have been working together also for about 15 years. He's directed all of my solo shows on and off Broadway. We've made two movies together. Um, and Seth, you were saying something that you really liked about that episode. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, on that episode, you had this really funny run about Catholicism, and Pete immediately schooled you on that stuff because he has a religious background and he he just kind of gave you the facts the background facts and you guys kind of went back and forth i think one of the, one of the things that's fun about that is as a comedian you don't want to be necessarily like uh so faithful to the facts that you become sort of uh stale um 
that the whole, the whole thing becomes sort of dry. But it is nice, even if you're embellishing what the facts are or you're embellishing what the real thing is about Jesus, that you know what it is you're embellishing and understand it better. Yeah. 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 I know facts come up actually in a bunch of episodes. I know for sure in the Sarah Cooper episode, you have yeah. a fairly long conversation about facts in the era of Trump and how difficult it is to make setups. I feel like satire in the age of Trump for me has been dead mm-hmm. because whenever people ask me in interviews about what what do you think of isn't Trump great for comedy and I'm always Ugh, like no he's ter- he's terrible. terrible he's terrible you know because because he's he challenges truth mm-hmm. and the existence of truth and if and truth is usually the setup for a joke right. and if there's no truth there can be no setups and so if there's no setups there can be no punchlines mm-hmm. and that that's sort of my take on political comedy in this era but somehow you have defied that yeah it's kind of like with you know you're with observational humor like you're you're pointing out things that everybody sees but nobody says you're just you know bringing things to light um and um i think for the first three and a half years of this, everyone was trying to add to Trump. You know, they yes. were trying to like, yes. how can I get as, you know, how can I take what he does and like add something to make it even crazier or whatever. And then I just went in the other direction. I just went, I took everything away, you know, and I, I and I think that's why it kind of is different and, and new is because I really wasn't, I'm not wearing a tie. I don't have a, I'm not, people, I'm not painting my face orange. I'm not doing any yes. of that stuff. Yes. So. Yeah. That's what it is. And I think, like, in, it's of the same DNA as when Tina Fey did Sarah Palin. Right, exactly. And, and he, she was using her exact words. Yeah. And so even even if, like, you like Sarah Palin, right. you're still going, like, it's pretty funny that she's saying her exact words. Right. And it's sad, too. And I do get that, that it's, it's you know, because it I, I do feel a sense of, like, wait a second, I'm a writer, and... I'm not writing anything, you know, like I, I feel like he's almost taken away. Like it's great. Trump is great for comedy. No, like he's awful because he's taken away my, what I was supposed to be doing. (laughs) You know, the thing, the thing that worked for me was not writing because he, because he is the punchline, you know, he's already done it. I don't have to do anything else. And so it is sad because he's not supposed to be the punchline. He's supposed to be the president. Uh, there was a clip on the Jacqueline Novak episode that kind of blew my mind where you guys got into the details of the structure of jokes and you talked specifically about, you know, the creation of the punchline and tags, but it was the minutia of what the tag is and actually how it works from a process standpoint, what it represents to the audience and all this stuff. The setup is the thing that's true. The punchline is the thing that's like the right turn that you don't see coming, but is surprising, is surprising but inevitable. And often that's just what a joke is. I was an altar boy as a kid, and the answer is no, I wasn't. I think because they knew I was a talker. You know, and then the tag is like, if you think he's this bad at lighting candles, that's the tag. But that's like an example of like setup punch. And then a lot of times tags are like the lines that are after that that build out the metaphor. Of the whole thing, yeah. It's like, um, well, the like, classic. I, can I just? I know I've we've yeah, like, of course, tri- I've in. Yeah, said yeah. this before, but the classic, you know, 
because you always have encouraged me like to add tags. I feel like you're huge on like seeing where comedians are. I'm just, I'm obsessed, with, ta- I'm obsessed with tags. Yeah, I'm obsessed yeah, with and tags. Le- you, you, you've said to me like, you're leaving money on the table. That's how you've referred to it. By not having tags or leaving money on the table. You always said like, you've done the hard work. You did the really hard work, which was the original swerve from, you know, the setup to the punchline. That's the hardest part, right? And And then the tags in theory are easy. And the tag oftentimes is what allows people who didn't get the right. punchline, it gives them time to enter the metaphor with the rest of the audience. Yes. It's not, uh, it, it's not the punchline as, as one brief like sliver appears one, that you can slip through once. And if you're – no, that's huge. And, um, but then every now and then, every now and then, like in your show and Get On Your Knees, like a lot of times you'll have, you'll have tags where I'm like – you were saying this about the, uh, the cancer yeah. joke. He's like, you're enjoying the tags in some ways more than the punchline, which is my experience of jokes a lot of times too. Jacqueline is as big of a nerd of comedy as you'll encounter. I I was talking to John Mulaney recently about Jacqueline because the, the, the three of us are all uh, old friends. And, um, and he said this thing about Jacqueline that was so insightful. He goes like, it's like um it's like someone who has like the mind of like a poet who studied the joke structure of David Tell. <laughs> and and I thought that that was like <laughs> such an interesting way of putting it that like she really is a student of like set up punch tag 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 which is a real like like a David Tell is like a real comics comic. I'm going to hand the baton back to Joe. Uh, Joe, did you have any other favorite episodes this year? Yeah, I had a couple. Um, particularly, I really took to Bo and Yang's story about his father sending him to conversion, uh, gay conversion school. You, you, got a, you had a really good conversation about it, and I, I recall that you suggested that perhaps he would want to make that into some sort of film or represent it some way. And you could tell he was still processing it, but it, I don't know. It was just, it was a real interesting story. I was reading about your background of like, that your, that your folks at one point tried to send you to like gay conversion. Oh yeah. Therapy. Yeah, they did. They did. They tried and, and succeeded. I, <laughs> <laughs> right. How many did you go for? It was just eight weeks. I got, I got pretty lucky I, I got like. By the way, you saying just eight weeks is <laughs> all. It's basically a horror movie. I know, I know, but it was. It started out. It's it's the way they lull you into cults. I feel it started out feeling like, oh, this is this just feels like talk therapy, right? Where, where like with Nexium, it just feels like, oh, this is just like a self improvement seminar, right? Um, and then they sort of, then they coax you into all this other stuff, like at the midway point. So that that's what that's what that sort of track was but yeah but you didn't you didn't come away from it being like i'm not gay right um in like deep down i knew that i was still gay but then this it it like was so weirdly timed where my parents gave me this ultimatum where if i could go to nyu and be with my sister oh my god go to the, to the gayest undergrad in the country um so this is from Col- from colorado you were living yes correct yeah so this is um going from Colorado to NYU. So my options were between NYU and UCLA, but my parents favored NYU because my sister was there. Right. And she could sort of chaperone me, uh, as it were. And that was not 
a fun position for her to be in either. But anyway, sure. but yeah, I mean, so 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 the 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 condition was that I was able to go to NYU if I did these eight weeks of conversion therapy. Oh my gosh! Um, so. So I, I came away from it thinking I, I'm, I'm still probably gay, but let me just, I might as well reinvent myself the way that everybody does when they go to undergrad, if they, sure you know, if, if they don't, if they go to a place that doesn't have a lot of their high school friends um, going it to. Was, it was your, it was your great Gatsby. Of sorts. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then truly gave it like an earnest go I'm- for a year <laughs> where I did, I did feel like I fell in love with a, with a girl um, and then you could call you could call that by the way, uh, the ungay Gatsby. The ungay Gatsby, and then the cover is um, <laughs> two eyes and like Warby Parker glasses. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. I like that. That was one of the episodes where I was like, oh, I really feel like Bowen and I will be friends, uh, or at mm-hmm. least do some more charity shows or together. The other one I, I would I would mention, what I found in, in going back over a lot of the episodes is that they covered so many so much ground in like things that they they dealt with and they, they evoked. The episode with Tommy Vitor and John Favreau from Pod Save America, I thought really it was one of those episodes that really went in a different direction. I mean obviously they're not comedians. Um and just you talked to them about career advice that they had received and that they had lived by, I thought was quite poignant. What's the best advice anyone's ever given you that that actually worked? I think I, I was told to um, always focus on what you want to do and not what you want to be. Yeah. Um, and, and think about the work that you like and not like the title you want or the job that you want. And I've always thought that's incredibly good advice, especially because you know, I when I jumped on the carry campaign out of college, I was like, you know, paid twenty thousand dollars a year, lived in a gross apartment, um, just basically broke. But I knew that I really wanted to do politics. I thought it was going to be cool, so I tried yeah. it. And I didn't, you know, it, it wasn't law school, which my parents had envisioned for me, and I didn't never ended up taking the LSATs. But I'm, you know, it it sort of set the course for the rest of my life. Yeah, I really love that one, and it was. Uh... And you can also feel, I, I don't know, I like that one because you could feel the passion of of how strongly they felt about all these all these issues that were uh, timely with the election. And uh, and 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 then that they, I thought they were also really funny for not being comedians, I will say. They're super funny. And also what was funny in re-listening to that one is that was prior to the election. And you could you could tell the trepidation and nervousness they had going into the election about the result. I, I mean I'm not sure of even what the result is yet, Joe. So I'm not. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not get ahead of ourselves. Um, one of my favorite episodes was the John Laster episode. I I felt like it was giving people a fly on the wall, <laughs> like uh, mm-hmm. like listening to what it's like to hear two comedians just literally shoot the shit. Because I spend so much time talking to John when things were, you know, normal um, at the Comedy Cellar. We talk for hours, and I would say, like, that conversation is so close to what our conversations are like. Like, there's no affect to it. Yeah, you know what's really sad, Mike? This is, this is, <laughs> this is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, this, this is, this is, 
Uh, you know, you my guy, so I can tell you, right? Right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I went into the bodega, right? Last night. <laughs> don't, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like where this is going. I go to the bodega last night. I've been doing, I've been doing a good job though. Right. Yeah. The, Just so the, to give a little background to the listeners, John revealed to me uh, about six months ago how many honey buns he eats on a regular basis, and I, I, I would say pretty close to shouted at you at the comedy cellar. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's where we're friends. <laughs> we're friends from the comedy cellar. We do a lot of shows together over the years, and that's how we become friends. But when you revealed to me, basically, you revealed to me. That at a certain point you were eating ten plus honey buns a day. Yeah, like eight. Yeah, eight or nine. Eight. Yeah, eight or nine. Let that yeah. sink in yeah. to the listeners. <laughs> How many honey buns? I'll just put it in perspective. I eat no honey buns per day. I mean, if I were to go on a, a honey buns bender. I'd eat two honey buns. Oh, yeah. You were eating eight. Eight honey buns a day. Yo, it's a true. So, but, then, but, so, but then, you, so then John and I sort of had it out about honey buns. That was probably six months ago. And you scared, is, and you scared the life out of me. You, you scared me into not uh, eating honey buns. Yeah, because I was like, you're going to die. Yeah. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're straight up going to die from honey buns. You're going to die. You're just going to tip over on stage from uh, honey buniosis. I encourage people to check that one out um, because there's a lot of great jokes. There's a lot of wild stories. And then there's a lot of very eye-opening stuff. Uh, he tells a story about trying to get an apartment. And it's a crazy story and a very you know informative uh, story um, because getting an apartment in New York is very hard. Getting an apartment in New York if you're a comic and have to prove your income that way is really hard. And then being black on top of it, as you can hear from John's story, is insanely hard. And it yeah. obviously it's it's it, it is uh, infuriating to listen to. And just his saga of trying to get approved to rent an apartment, and he's an established New York comedian. It's it is so uh, eye opening and um, upsetting. Uh, very informative. The other episode that I love is the Maria Bamford episode, and 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 I I couldn't recommend an episode more highly to people. She is probably my favorite comedian, and I have so many. I love comedy. Uh, because she just really goes there. I mean, she just has no fear talking about things that she struggles with and, and mental health issues she struggles with that are really extreme. And, and I found that to be a completely inspiring episode in terms of me not pulling any punches with my own writing. You do virtual shows, which I think are amazing. And I saw that you told this story about how you and your husband have sort of a pact if either one of you is ever considering suicide, which you have before, and it's it's a very serious thing. We, yes. Um, that if you or your husband are considering that, that you have to post about it in the shared community area in your apartment. Yes, it's on the um, refrigerator in chip clip magnets. Oh, my gosh. Um, because... 
one thing that we realized in, in probably the reason we attracted to each other, my husband, he would always kind of joke. Like if I said I was feeling low or just feeling bad, you know, he'd kind of go, he'd go, I'm depressed too. (laughs) 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 Which is hilarious. (laughs) Me too. I don't feel good either. And then, which is so sweet. And, uh, and then, um, we both also started, <laughs> it's it's another um, relaxant, fantasize about death, uh, long for the afterlife. Sure. Uh, it's called suicidal ideation. I think sure. many people have done it. Um, so that's something we didn't realize we both have in common as something to kind of calm down in yeah. situations to either, um, yeah. So both of us were having a bad day. <laughs> And uh, and I thought to ask a little later, hey, what were you thinking about? And he's like, what were you thinking about? Uh oh, um, he was thinking about his plans. I was thinking about my oh my, my little plans. And you know, of course, it's it, it, it's funny, but it's also, and I think that that's what I I, I want to talk about that stuff is so that we don't feel ash- or I'll speak for myself. Sorry, uh, I don't feel ashamed. Um, that that's, um, yeah, we have these two signed, uh, contracts that our therapist had us write up of, mm-hmm. uh, what we can do if someone's in danger or feeling impulsive. Sure. Um, sure. and again, paperwork has never saved a life. Uh, but what <laughs> if, what if, uh, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> no, but they signed something, um, <laughs> Uh, it's been notarized. Uh, <laughs> I have a memory about that Maria Bamford episode, um, which is indicative <laughs> of the podcast uh, process in the age of COVID, which is we've experienced, you know, a myriad of technical issues and and Kate is really adept at, at working through those. But it was really special for me too. I, I love that episode too. She's uh, definitely, you know, one of the funniest people ever. And um I was buying uh, dog food in a in a pet store, and my I got a call on my cell phone from Maria Bamford, um, and she just needed some help troubleshooting something on her computer in preparation for the recording, and it was just a very surreal moment. Like thinking back to the first time I saw Maria Bamford in the Comedians of Comedy documentary, and I never thought that many years later I'd be in a pet store, <laughs> sort of like walking back and forth in hushed tones in the aisle, helping Maria Bamford install some audio software on her laptop. I think the point is the staff of working it out are just, we're real star fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Mabel, did you have another one? Um, yeah, I was going to talk about the Tignataro uh, episode where you guys have this great run about Kiss and Indigo Girls that is really just a magical riff where you're building on each other, and it's it's so much fun. I love this episode so much. I don't know if we can even properly ramp into this and have people understand it, but basically, uh, <laughs> Tig... It's a very serious story. She she talks about having this medical emergency at her own show where she passes out and she's being carried out of the theater. And earlier in the episode, we I guess this is all the people need to know, we have referenced that she likes the band Kiss as well as the band Indigo Girls. 
And also, I have on multiple occasions gone to an Ani DeFranco concert alone. And a uh, security guy had to pick me up and put me in a car. And there were still people from the show in front of the theater watching. Oh, my gosh. Huge man carry me out and put me in a car. And Stephanie drove me to the hospital around the corner. That's like if you went to an Indigo Girls show and afterwards <laughs> one of the Indigo Girls was being taken away in no, an ambulance. No, it's like if you went to an Indigo Girls show and both Indigo Girls are being carried out <laughs> after the show. No, Tig. It's like if you went to an Indigo Girls concert and uh, after the show... One of the Indigo Girls is being flown away in a helicopter, and one of them is being driven away on the back of a motorcycle. No, no, no. It's like if you went to an Indigo Girls concert and Kiss is being carried out (laughs) (laughs) of the theater. No, it's like if you went to an Indigo Girls concert and Mike Birbiglia has to leave early because Ani DeFranco is performing across town at 9.30. (laughs) Okay, it is exactly like that. Okay, good. Okay, it's, good. That, that's the perfect example. Yeah, one of the things that that probably made me laugh harder than anything we've recorded because when Tig, when Tig is in the zone of of a bit, because she's always she's interesting because she's first of all she's very intimidating to me, and I've known her for a long time. I mean, at least ten years. Um, she's completely sincere at all times and completely willing to go down the rabbit hole of a joke at all times. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of those two things, you really have to be on your game. So for this final episode of the year, we decided instead of having a typical ad, I was just gonna talk to the founders of a company that I really admire. The founders of Bomba's Socks, Randy Goldberg and David Heath. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's such a simple premise, which is for every pair of socks you sell, you give a pair to a homeless shelter, and you've given away, at this point, there's a running tally on your site, 43 million pairs of socks. The moment I heard that, I was like, okay, definitely I'll try it. (laughs) And then I got the socks, and I was like, I love these socks. These are the socks for the rest of my life. I mean, it was so simple, literally so simple. Have you ever been told along the way, you cannot do this idea, and you just go, no, fuck it, we're going to do it? Yeah, I mean, how many times have we been told that, Dave? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we were told that on national television. I mean, you know, we were on Shark Tank, and Mr. Wonderful was like, you're giving away half your profits. You know, how could you possibly, you know, scale and, and endure over a long period of time? And I think the easy argument was the reason that we've scaled and endured is because we give, you know, half of what we do away. I mean, it's, it is, it, look, it's the reason we're talking to you. I mean, you wouldn't have picked up the phone to reach out to us if we were just like a random sock company. I didn't realize I cared about socks until I found you guys. And now I'm, now I'm all in on socks. <laughs> You mentioned like the art of it and the fact that it's such a simple idea. And that's that's the key, right? I mean, like any good script or a good business too, you have to you have to make it 
simple and powerful enough for other people to tell your story on your behalf. And this is, of course, a perfect tie-in to the holiday season and giving back. Uh, if you go to bombas.com slash burbigs, you get 20% off your first order, bombas.com slash burbigs. Uh, Randy and David, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Peter, did you have a did you have something about the show that was the the podcast? Because we've made it what you know twenty five episodes. Was there anything surprising or exciting, particularly about making the show? Oh, I I just have a very quick one um, because the last episode we released before this was the return of Ira Glass, and um, it's sort of brought everything full circle from when Ira was on the first time, giving you notes on a story that you then revised. And it's, you know, really maybe the most clear illustration of the working it out premise. Um, I wanted to bring it up just because uh, my mother-in-law is a huge fan of the podcast and a huge fan of Mike and uh, is very protective of Mike because I told her that Ira Glass is coming back. And she said, she said, Oh, I think I'll skip that one because I don't like when Ira criticizes Mike. Oh, my God. (laughs) In closing, how close to being a story for This American Life is this story? Halfway there. (laughs) Halfway there? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's, It's just an awful estimate. Well, the no. margins are ter- the margins are terrible on that. Well, no, we just got a structure, but now there's like jokes to fix, and do you know what I mean? All the like, work, to, yeah, all the work, all the work that has to be. There's done. digressions yeah. to like. I feel like you can have certain digressions, but you can't have all of them. Like either you do the, sure. the goose down thing, or you don't do the golf thing. Or, sure, sure. Like, all that's 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 the machining of it. And they're great. And by the way, they're great notes. I mean, I would say like Seth and Ira have both been different types of what in in theater people call uh dramaturgs uh which is to say that they're they're drawing the story or the play out from the writer and then helping to sort of guide the sculpting process of the show and i and and Seth and Ira have very different approaches mm. to dramaturgy <laughs> uh but they co- they complement one another Seth you might want to speak to that yeah, no, it's true. It's true, and and uh, I, I also have enjoyed working with Ira over the years, and and uh, we do have a different approach. My approach, I would describe it as: you'll say something, or or you know, share something, and I'll mirror back. Uh, well, what I get from that is fill and fill in the blank. Yeah, and then we're able to kind of check in and go, you know, is that what you intend? Do you want it to be something <laughs> else? So what could we do from then, or what could you do if you yeah. want to or not? And I would say, I, I don't know, how would you describe Ira's approach? Ira's approach is that um, he takes a hammer and he smashes it into my face repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would say, I was going to say, I was going to say quite those words. I was going to say something like Ira goes, no, 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 that's, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's a little more I mean, blunt. I mean, Ira is, first of all, he's a genius. I, we have Definitely. to, I mean, he's, probably possibly the smartest person I've ever met. And he, and I've met a lot of smart people. I've been very lucky to meet a lot of smarties. And, uh, but the way he gives notes is like, um, very immediately formative because he's from a, a, a weekly 
radio deadline background. I mean, they've yeah. made they've made hundreds and hundreds of of episodes of This American Life, and he you know he's won a Pulitzer and, and a Peabody. I mean, every, everything. And they're on deadline all the time. Yeah. And so yeah. when you talk to Ira, he does not want to have the conversation be one of 100 conversations about a story. He wants to fix your story and he wants to fix it now before you get off the phone. I think it was Ira Glass who coined the term, fuck your feelings. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> of course, that was it. That was famously Ira Glass. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> For the fact checkers at home, that is not Ira Glass. Seth would never say that. Seth would never say that. <laughs> I, I very much Ira's credit. I, I should point out that he is a, he'll, he'll often say things and then he'll immediately on the heels of it go, you know, but I don't know, maybe. And he'll, he'll, he leaves yeah. room for and acknowledges the fact that whatever he's positing is not the be all and end all. It's just there to prompt the conversation and the process. And it's, it's actually a really wonderful way of working, I think. I think I would be remiss in discussing some of the surprises of the podcast if we forget to talk about free samples and things you get sent by the sponsors. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Can we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get now, I'm now paid in mattresses and MeUndies. I got, I got a basement fridge full of Spindrift and the Sam Adams alcohol representative dropped off a truckload of products at my house and filled my <laughs> basement fridge. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that is why Joe is in the podcast business. Honey, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can trade these goods and services for money. <laughs> I believe, Joe, it was at, at Sun, Sundance when uh, I saw you at, at a, one of the bars up above the place with this brand new coat. And you were like, and I was like, where did you get that? You go like, downstairs, just walk in. They just give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> And then you got one of those coats, Seth, and I saw I you, you've, you've been wearing it ever since. I did. I yeah. still have that coat. It's from 2012. <laughs> it's a saga coat. So good. It lasts a long time. I think we need a quick uh, survey from Mabel on her favorite Magic Spoon flavors because that Mabel's obsession with Magic Spoon cereal is very real. <laughs> Mabel, how do you rank? I would say Fr Frosted is my favorite. Frosted is absolutely my favorite. Um, and then I would say the, cocoa would be my second favorite. Totally. And I, would, I will share an anecdote, which is one time your daughter, Mike, asked me for some cocoa magic spoon. And there was so few left that I just, I literally gave her a handful and ate the rest myself. And that... <laughs> you, are a, you are a monster. You are a monster. <laughs> One of my favorite moments is uh, the Matt Berninger, Corinne Besser, J-Hope Stein episode, partly uh, because Jen reads a poem called The Machine that I love, um, and then partly because Matt Berninger is the front person for The National, my favorite band on the planet. And so to have an excuse to have a candid discussion about like marriage and collaboration with Matt and Corinne and Jen is like, I mean, it's a dream come true. Sometimes I like to feel, I know I'm always kidding myself, but sometimes I like to feel that I have stayed so much away 
that my opinion then holds great weight. <laughs> <laughs> it never really that's, works that's like that, that, but that sounds familiar. The you know, like the value, and and I also like to do the thing of the like. Here's just my gut reaction, which is always kind of. She does hard. wait, and she do, you know if there's something she <laughs> oh, no, wants me to change, this. she will. She'll wait and find a way that there's no way I cannot, like, she'll, I, I'm trying to think of an example. But I probably learned this technique Where she'll just you. say, I don't know, you know, that, that you just, <laughs> the way you're saying that line makes me just picture you in, like, in, like, beige shorts, you know, <laughs> and, like, something like that. So one of the reasons I love that Matt and Corinne and, and Jen episode is that it, it's really candid and frank and raw about marriage and collaboration. And then also Jen shares an original poem and Corinne shares an original poem. And I don't know, it just, it feels unique from all the other episodes. It's really unique hearing a bunch of artists who live together uh, talk about how they work. I wear beige shorts. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? I I can't believe you admitted that. (laughs) I've got four different pairs. Pleats. I got flat front. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, so. Uh, oh, I have to mention this one: the the Hasan Minaj episode. I always recommend to people because, in some ways, it's like the most real time joke creation, working it out mm-hmm. uh, that happens in the whole season. Which is that the, he works out this story about going on a trip w- with his wife. So basically, nobody was staying at the inn. So it was just us and one other couple. And we're sitting there at breakfast. This other couple is maybe four tables away. And this girl is having a full-on argument with the guy. She goes, (laughs) and I remember this. I remember this as clearly as, like, Hickey Jim. She goes, (laughs) really? You're going to tell your mom I'm just your friend? Oh my God! Yeah. So they were at a they were at a wedding the night before, and he introduces said girl as, "Hey, mom, this is my quote unquote friend," and I'm staring. I'm full on staring. I'm watching them having a full on fight, and I cannot tell you how happy I was to watch another couple fight. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Why do I feel this way, Mike? Why do I get such joy watching other people's yeah. lives fall apart? Well, it's schadenfreude, which is the joy from other people's pain. Okay. That's part of it. And then, and then I think it is, it's the relatability of that you and Bina have conflicts and sometimes you secretly probably think it's just you, you two. Yes. But there's this and, joy and, of like, I, I reveled in it because I was like, hey, babe, look. That, that guy <laughs> is, is worse than me. The final segment is always working it out for a cause. And I thought, um, why don't we donate to food banks in each of our respective either hometowns or where we're living right now? And uh, for my part, I'm going to give to City Harvest in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll be donating to the Rhode Island Community Food Bank, which is um, very active in the Providence and, and in the entire state of Rhode Island. And I've been contributing to Food Issues Group, um, and they created a frontline community food relief program in response to COVID-19 in New York City. 
And they provide meals and groceries to underserved communities, but they also provide support to independent food businesses who can be the engines of those efforts, but are also struggling themselves in this crisis. And you can find them at foodissuesgroup.org. Yeah, and I grew up in Northern California, and there's an organization out there called the California Association of Food Banks, and they're doing great work. And uh, I am from South Florida, and I just wanted to highlight an organization called Feeding South Florida. They're one of the largest food banks in southeastern Florida serving Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and beyond. And there was just an article the other day in the Sun Sentinel newspaper about how they are close to running out of food because it's obviously a very busy time of year. So um, you can find them at feedingsouthflorida.org. They could really use the help. I'm currently in Hyde Park, Chicago, and there is Union Church, which is two blocks away from me right now, um, is a great, great place that does a lot for the community um, in addition to distribute food. So I'll be donating there. Well, I'm going to contribute to all of those. As a matter of fact, what we're going to do is, you know, we have these Christmas and New Year's Eve uh, working it out virtually shows. You can get tickets at burbigs.com. For the 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time New Year's Eve show, I'm going to give 100% of the proceeds to those six awesome organizations. We're hoping to give uh, thousands of dollars to those groups, and the links to all of those organizations uh, will be in the show notes. I want to send a special thanks uh, to my wife, the poet J-Hope Stein. Our book, the new one, is Curbside. Uh, my daughter, Una, who created this radio fort of pillows. As always, a special thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. And, of course, to Jack Antonoff. He created the music you're listening to right now in his free time when he wasn't producing his own Bleachers albums, that's the band he's the front man for, as well as uh, as writing songs on, on these two amazing Taylor Swift albums. Um, he's always so generous with his time. He did a song for Tip Your Waitstaff. He did the song for Working It Out. We so appreciate everything that Jack does. That's great, yeah, and also, um one more person, I, I'm glad you mentioned Jack, it made me think of our art director, Adam Jeffers in Lawrence, Kansas, who did the artwork for the podcast. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Adam is incredible. And thanks, everybody, uh, Joe and Mabel and, and Kate and Peter and Seth for, uh, for making, uh, working it out, the show that it is. And thanks to the listeners uh, for being a part of it. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. <laughs> Should we all say it together? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell what is it your, as a group, as a group, maybe one, two, three. Tell, tell your, your friends. friends. Tell, tell your, your enemies. That's gonna need some work. <laughs> 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 <laughs>